Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about 1974's noir mystery about water rights in Los Angeles back in the late 1930s. Boy, it sounds like dry material. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh, it's directed by Roman Polanski, the award-winning, uh, very talented, uh, and now disgraced director who's currently in exile in Europe for raping and sodomizing a 13-year-old girl. Have to get that out of the way because it definitely colored my opinion of the third act of this film. Written mm-hmm. by Robert Town, uh, who was brought on to write this, uh, the script to uh, uh, The Great Gatsby for $150,000 and said, I can't do it. I can't do better Fitz- than Fitzgerald. How about I write this thing about Chinatown for twenty five grand? Sold, said Robert Evans, <laughs> who we recently really enjoyed Matthew Good's portrayal of him in The Offer that was yeah. on, on Paramount. Oh, man, there's so many great The Offer callbacks uh, in, in, in this movie, or I guess the, the title credits of this movie. It stars Jack Nicholson, Easy Rider, The Departed, Shining. Those are just the movies that we've got a podcast for. Uh, legendary actor Faye Dunaway, uh, star of Bonnie and Clyde, the original Thomas Crown Affair, Towering Inferno, and, and many others. John Hillerman, who's mostly famous to me for being Higgins and Magnum P.I. Okay, uh, yeah. I was wondering, where have I seen this guy? That's exactly right, right. right. Burt Young, who is Polly from the Rocky films, mm-hmm. and John Houston, legendary head of the Houston Hollywood family that includes Jack and Angelica. He also wrote and directed The Maltese Falcon, which I thought was interesting. Uh, that's my personal favorite noir film. Huh. Uh, Never seen it. This is widely considered one of the top 10 American movies of all time. Uh, what did you think of this film? I liked it. I don't think that's any surprise, right? It's a it's a very well written script. It's extremely well acted by the lead, uh, the the two leads. Um, yeah, I mean, what's not to like about this movie? I, maybe the ending, because the ending might frustrate you. But but it's also what makes the movie powerful, I guess. Oh yeah, um, I, yeah I. I, I like to film the, the the thing about this film. I guess that's really lauded is the screenplay itself. They say that it's like one mm. of the perfect screenplays in the terms of its dialogue, and the terms of its pacing, and the terms of how they dole the mystery out, and how it kind of twists and turns all the the wheels within wheels of secrets, and how they manage that. Uh, and I got all that, and I was like two thirds of this film thinking this might actually dethrone the Maltese Falcon. And the the way the third act goes and like my knowledge, because that's the thing I'd forgotten that Roman Polanski had directed this thing when we selected, <laughs> did all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, and I, oh, when yeah. I saw his name, I'm like, God damn it, I'm going to have to talk about him sodomizing some poor mm-hmm. girl he, he and his that, that he, he groomed. And that's going to be a bummer. Um, but then when I saw the like, I felt like the there, there's a villain that the villain has like a little mini monologue where I felt like for a minute, Roman Polanski was kind of like defending himself 
Hmm. And I don't know if he intended it as such or what, but it just, I I just like, it it was, it, it took me out of the film, you know? Um, But until that point, and also it's just, just bleak. It's a really bleak, depressing, uh, you know, Sisyphean ending. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so like it, uh, it, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in on a Wednesday morning. But I, yeah, I'm trying to put aside my personal feelings about the director and and the man behind the film, which I'm not saying I, yeah, is even I, something you should have to do. But like, yeah, I. And it's the other thing is like I felt like this is similar to Godfather too, where you could take a few watches to get everything this this movie's putting out. Yeah, for sure. I still have questions after a single watch. Um, you know, like uh, what. What did the the names of these old people? Why put the the land under the names of these old people? Right, like the stuff like that. Um, what's the purpose of that? And I'm sure the movie clues me in if I would watch it again and pick up every detail. But yeah, definitely, yeah. I think the the screenplay and the movie itself are strong enough to warrant a second watch, uh, at least. And I can see people going back to this movie frequently because it is it, it does hold together really well. Yeah, and it's like it's kind of unique for from my perspective from like a, a noir film, and that the stakes are so high. Mm-hmm. Like you know, when you say that, like when something in a you know uh, Humphrey Bogart film goes all the way to the top, mm-hmm. maybe it's the mayor of a town or something. But this is involving like yeah. a multi-state conspiracy to. I don't know, like enrich a bunch of oligarchs that are like you know, drying out farmers and, and taking advantage of poor immigrant families and all this other stuff. It's like, he really uncovers something that's not just like a tawdry romance or an illegal liquor operation. It's like, it's, it's a real giant conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie's got a lot of balls that way. Uh, and yeah, I, 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 the other thing is like, I kept on reading about like how great the cinematography is uh, on this film. I thought it was pretty pedestrian. Hmm. Interesting. Potatoes, but but sometimes pre nineties films feel that way. Yeah, that's the thing. In the seventies movie, I'm not calibrated. I'm I'm not qualified enough to say, "Hey, the direction on this movie is amazing" or whatever. Because I'm I'm just not steeped in the seventies cinema in the way that Mm -hmm. uh, film historians definitely are. Yeah, I, I would say that there are things in there that are interesting for the time period. You don't often see a lot of the the stuff that we see now, which is like, you know, the, the POV being of Jack Nicholson, the entire movie and him. That's really cool. Like when he gets knocked out or something, the camera kind of fading out with him and fading back in. I think that was one of the techniques there that was surprising for the day um, or mm-hmm. new or novel. And I, beyond that, like I didn't notice much, much flourish. I hear a lot about the lighting um, and how it's very complicated and very well set up. And, uh, but, but I'm, I'm so used to modern cinema where lighting yeah. like that is taken for granted and, and you got, and push far stuff beyond now because like right, right now right. it's like, well, they filmed this out in the desert at high noon. Everything's blindingly lit and slightly overexposed, but like, it's nothing like you can do now with like right. modern cameras and with you got their, your high definition, uh, or what is that? What's HDR actually stand for? I forget high dynamic uh, range, high dynamic range lighting where it's like, you really get blooms and like, you really can simulate, you know, things blooming out and fading. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, just it, it there's something kind of dated. The the camera's very static, it's not very dynamic. Um a lot of the uh gunplay, which is not a lot for mm-hmm. a de- uh, you know, kind of detective, a private eye movie. It's um the gunplay's kind of sloppy, not particularly well done. Some of the okay. some hmm. of the stage makeup is shockingly bad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, let's talk about the makeup for a second, because I don't know. Do you, do you want to get into like what the movie is about, and then we can kind of talk more details? Because I'm, I'm itching to talk about some of the things that this movie does well, that so, subvert everything I expect of a film. Well, so for the kids listening, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I include myself and definitely Jim in his category, that might bristle. <laughs> like you know, it's like my son. Like anytime we start a movie and it's shot before the year 2006, he's like, "This looks like an old film, Dad." Like mm-hmm. you can kind of tell from the stock and the lighting uh why would you go back why would you if you're under the age of 30 hell under the age of 40 why would you go back to this 1974 movie like what what recommends it because we just talked about how like it's kind of dated in this way it's dated in that Mm -hmm. way this doesn't quite hold together uh if you know anything about the director you might have a big you know uh moral issue with consuming what 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 is this what is to recommend this film i mean i I think it's the plot we talked about, I guess. Sure, I think the the screenplay is very good, but also I think like having some kind of perspective on on the history of cinema is good. I I don't have a huge amount of it. I've I've seen a handful of movies from like the forties. I've seen a few more from like the the sixties and the seventies, but I'm I'm really steeped in like eighties and beyond. And I, I feel like going back to these older movies kind of clues me in as to the the big leaps that were made like right at this era like you and not even leaps necessarily that are good but just changes in the industry i guess um Mm -hmm. especially around like jaws when you when you look at like jaws coming out very shortly after this movie right it was like a year later or something Mm -hmm. um the movie industry just changed when jaws came out and like seeing this pre-jaws thing where robert evans is putting stories up on screen that even he isn't like super thrilled with but he trusts the talent involved Mm -hmm. and they tell just like riveting stories um Mm -hmm. that are in a lot of cases much more mundane than this story but still very exciting in themselves and then you look at like how it changes with the jaws uh era of blockbusters and huge marketing budgets and everything changes from focus on storytelling to focus on getting eyeballs on their stuff and it's just like I feel like that's the value of it. You see like what it was like before then and what it was like after then. Um, and that's true of every era, right? There are changes in the forties that happen in the fifties, sixties, seventies, all of them. But yeah, I think there's value in just knowing the history. There's also value. I think if you only know Jack Nicholson from like the departed or <laughs> sure, as, yeah. as the grandpa that sits beside all the Lakers games, it's interesting to go back and mm-hmm. see him in his prime. Like every single, because I, I myself, like uh, until I think two years ago, we saw Easy Rider. I don't think I'd seen a Jack Nicholson before The Shining, which is really late in his career, 1980s. Um, yeah. And it's every time I go and see one of these early Nicholsons, I'm like, oh, I kind of get it. I understand mm-hmm. why this guy was so mad. Like, you know, because like you see still photos of him and like, God, even when he was kind of young and in his prime, he's still balding and he's kind of like angular and he's got that weird kind of delivery, man. And like what? Why was he hmm. such a riveting kind of sex symbol? Why was he seen as this like like man's man kind of guy? And like you see him slip into essentially a Sam Spade type of role, a Dixon Hill. 
Uh, and I wouldn't think he'd be particularly good at it, knowing his body of work, but he kind of kills it, mostly with like the quintessential don't give a fuck of like a real good hard-boiled detective. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's that element there, to it. There's parts of this film, and I think he turns around, but like where like he's not even really bothered by the moral morass the city is in because that's kind of his stock and trade it's more of like mm-hmm. they've cut tried to cut off my nose despite my face and i'm in it for purely personal reasons um i i, I just i don't know there's something that really because like he doesn't do the like social engineering very well like every time he rolls sure, into a situation yeah. where he's bluffing it's like jack nicholson always looks like he's up to something and to the movie's credit mm-hmm. the mark is always kind of like vaguely unsure and off to call the cops every time he like yeah i'm just gonna go in this fucking door and do whatever the hell i want sweetheart um but he's yeah is it's 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 a landmark jack nicholson role and uh Uh it's it's yeah if you don't if you don't get why he is such a big thing in hollywood it's kind of neat to go back and see you know these things where he's in his prime Mm -hmm. uh okay do do we did so? Do you want me to do the thing where I outline the the thesis of the movie? Yeah, let's do it. We'll be right back with more bald move after this brief pause. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, back with more Bald Move. This is a complicated plot. I'm going to set you up for the first, like, 10, 15 <laughs> minutes of it. Jack Nicholson is a private detective. His name is Jake. Uh, get it? Get it? What? what that, get us. Get us. I think is how he you. says it. They, everybody says it differently, sometimes to insult him, sometimes just because they don't know. But Right, right. And it, I it's think like he hard says to get us. Track. Um, he is hired by a wealthy water commissioner's wife to investigate marital infidelity or is which he? which he does that gets leaked to the press and then the real wife of the wealthy <laughs> commissioner shows up in his office and threatens to sue him for defamation because she did no such thing and it's an entirely different woman mm-hmm. and this is his first indication that something something's a lot deeper going on here in this city in this valley in this family and he gets sucked into a struggle over real estate and water in the desert of Los Angeles that's going to go all the way to the top. Uh, and there are so many twists and turns, so many character reveals, uh, so many moments where your loyalties and suspicion shifts. Um, it's 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 a it's a lot of it's a lot of fun to watch. And it, to the extent that like I man, I don't know, I I, I want to talk a lot about the ending. 
that's the spoiler free part. So if you want to, you know, go and enjoy Chinatown uh, Unsullied, now's the time to bail out. Do you want to? OK, let, let's. Is it weird to start at the the ending? I, I mean, the ending is what I think defines this movie. Uh, sets it apart from so many other neo-noir type films. Yeah, so, it's sure. I, I, what did you think? Is like uh, there is a well-documented disagreement between uh, Robert Town, the writer, and Roman Plansky, the director, about how this thing ends. Uh, Robert Town ends it with Faye Dunaway uh, slaying her father and being arrested uh, for the murder of this uh, of her father and no one really knows why and there's like this kind of like which which you know the 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 Robert Town defended is kind of like it's kind of unsettling and depressing in its own way there's still no justice there but there's a little bit of like well at least this girl's not going to go into the clutches of this this pedophile's hands and get you know the cycle of abuse is going to be perpetuated um, Roman Plansky is like, no, 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 that's not good enough. Uh, this mother going to try to protect her child in that way. She's going to be slain by the police, get her head blown off. And then the uh, rapist pedophile grandfather is going to usher that girl away. And Jake is going to be helpless to do anything about it because it's Chinatown. Um, I felt like that was a, a because I, I I don't know, like I, I wasn't expecting any conventional good guys win. I didn't think anyone would leave this movie happy, but like. As bleak as it ended, it it, it, it kind of bothered me. I don't know. It was it, it took me. I didn't mm-hmm. think the film was pitching that kind of heat. Yeah, I agree. I was surprised by the ending, um, and that was the best part of the ending. Is just it, it it was not what I expected, and I I think like it leaves you in a place of despair because I that that is what I wanted to happen. I wanted her to shoot him and this girl to get away from him and. You know, whether she's arrested or not, whatever, that's that's beside the point. At least justice will have been done here. Justice is not going to be done by the end of this movie. And I think it's more powerful for it's making more of a statement. It's saying that the good guys don't always win and that the the moneyed interests, the powerful people who do bad things will oftentimes get away with it. Uh, and, and to me, that is a much more on point message than hey, you know, you can stand up and, and and fight against this because you're on the side of right. <laughs> that seems a little like Pollyanna for me. Because mm. I, I thought the, the the understanding of um, the fact that this woman's going to un, to go to jail probably unjustly and the fact that, yeah, you stopped the mm-hmm. one of these guys, but there's a whole bunch sure. of other oligarchs that are going to like, like Jake said to like two or three different dudes, like, hey, I'm not even after you. You can be fat and rich and well-connected and whatever. I want to get the guy who's on top. The fact that, like, they did defraud all of these ranchers, all these farmers, the people of Los Angeles of their water rights to mm-hmm. make themselves. And that's the thing. Not to make themselves rich, to make themselves richer, which yeah, is something the that. Future. Yeah, there's something that the kind of future, resonates. Mr. Gets, the future. And boy, you hear that when it's it's hard not to make connections to the wealthy elites today and them, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. setting their sights on Mars and building their copper rockets and do, you know, like who yeah. knows what sacrifices being justified uh, in the name of the future. No, th- this movie is is still extremely relevant. I mean, yeah. the, nothing that happens in this movie 
you can't look at this movie and say, ha, look at that bygone era of the time when rich people used to fuck over the public and get away with it scot-free. You can't. You just can't. And if you are, you're willfully ignorant of of things like this happening every day. And that's the thing to me that was so interesting about this movie is it portrays this scheme, this grand conspiracy uh, that was happening kind of in in a in a smaller, I don't know, maybe not a smaller context, but basically happened 30 years before this movie is set uh, mm. in the early 1900s. Mm. And if you think like it is just portraying one crazy situation that, you know, got out of hand and there was a conspiracy and, oh, it's a good thing we discovered it and put it into all that, you're completely naive. Yeah. I do think this stuff, uh, it, minus, uh, it, it comes in waves, though. Like you have where like, you know, times are good and uh, people are making money and the country's kind of booming and people take the, you know, there's a new technology uh, or, you know, um, a consolidation of like media companies in the case of like, you know, the the late 1800s, early 1900s is the newspapers. Now it's like social media. But these conditions uh, arise where people can kind of like pull this massive cons on the public and then it's exposed. You have the muckraking journalists. You got the Upton Sinclair's exposing all this stuff and people kind of put their eye on the ball and things are good again uh, until, you know, you forget and take your eye off the ball. It's like something like almost generationally that you have to learn that like, you know, because uh, I, I don't think that like corruption is ever present. I think it's something that waxes and wanes. And you yeah, know, this, this is telling a time where it really was waning in at least particular parts of the country. Waxing, yeah, and I, I, I always come back to the uh, right. Right. It was it was uh, it kicked in a high gear. Uh, I, I always come back to the idea of money never sleeps. Right. Like you may catch this one person doing this one bad thing. And expose that, mm. but I guarantee there are five other people doing the exact same thing in different arenas, and they are not being exposed and caught because either they were slightly smarter about the way they did it, or people just don't can't keep their eyes everywhere, right? Well, uh, it's the, one of the things I thought was brilliant about the film to, to to build on that is like it shows this guy. This guy is a detective, but he's not doing anything crazy. He's essentially walking around looking at things seeing if they match the things that people are telling him going to a public building and getting public records and do anyone could do this stuff mm-hmm. it's just who's got the time and the effort to spend the days yeah. if not weeks going and pouring over the public records and the plots and the land titles and seeing the writing down the names and finding who's in the obituaries and cross-referencing to old folks like who's got the time to fucking do that it's it's all happening in plain sight it's all above the board no idea mm-hmm. uh, you know like uh, well i guess people are being murdered but other than the like one or two murders happen in the film, there's not even probably even <laughs> laws being broke, right? No, no, that's the thing. The, I think the plan in this is to divert water to a an area of of California that is not currently Los Angeles, but will be by the time that they divert the water. And so they can technically claim that the water is going to Los Angeles. It's just going well, to the places the- they've recently purchased, which are now going to skyrocket in value. And the Water Commission, there's, there's a couple of interesting, fascinating things in this film. Thing. So the Water Commission, number one, their job is to ration the water in the desert. So mm-hmm. like what they're doing, like starving these farmers out is like covered up by like, oh, well, you know, it's routine to divert water here and there because like this 
this uh, Citrus Valley is suffering here and this person near and then like, you know, and this is just all it's 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 all easy to kind of explain away. And the other thing is like the generation before. There was a person who owned the water supply mm-hmm. and his business partner had a philosophical disagreement with them. And I, I, they don't really go in and resolve this. And this is all based on like real life stuff. So a lot of the kind of like crazy questions about like why old folks and stuff are probably because that's the way it happened in real life. <laughs> okay. But like, there's also this kind of like resentment that this guy who owned the water and, 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 and was swindled away from him by the public uh, as a, as a resource, like he's trying to reassert that, you know, he's like trying mm-hmm. to essentially claw like, no, this shouldn't, you know, like uh, th- this shouldn't be owned by the public. I'm trying to essentially claw it back. Um, just because I'm wanting to shape the future of Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I thought that stuff was really, 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 really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do, I do wish that by the end of this movie, we'd get some indication that the people who technically on paper own this, those people at the old folks home would have like realized that they owned it and stolen it back out from under him. That would have been like the justice and, and maybe like sold it back to the city at like extremely reduced rates. And so he would have been just completely undermined in all of his plans. But of course it's not that kind of movie. Yeah. Why do you think justice I want to see done though? Why do you think they had the old folks? I really don't know. Um, It it seems. So obviously they have somebody in, in the records offices, right At, at water and power or whatever to, to, to keep kind of a marker for them, letting letting them know that, hey, you guys actually own this property, but we're going to put it under some other names. So it, my my assumption is that there was some scheme where like when they died, it was going to somehow revert back to them. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's why they did I, the old folks people. I have a slightly different interpretation of all that, but like I arrived at the same conclusion that um, the fact that these things, names are pasted over in a book is routine. Uh-huh. It's like... You know, this is like these got sold this month and we'll replace the pages at the end of the month. But like, you know, the shocking thing was like how much of the valley was up for sale. And then, the, yes, that they're like it seemed like that this um, Albacore Yacht Club or whatever, this patron saint of this old folks home had conditioned these old folks to like maybe people who are formerly wealthy, they take them in and provide a certain lifestyle and probably do like a reverse mortgage. And then it's like, oh, but you sign everything over to the Albacore company when you die. And you got all these old folks who it's like, (laughs) it's like taking out a five year certificate of deposit that might pay out next year. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, there's no fucking way any of these geezers are going to make it past five years. So all we got to do is wait. And we have every, we've got all this stuff. Um, It seems like a pretty pretty airtight scheme honestly yeah except that uh shit noah noah crook what's what's his name <laughs> uh noah crook N- oh you're, you, the old guy the the, the water commissioner or, or noah you're cross. talking about okay noah yeah, cross. Cross. okay uh, he yeah. doesn't have much time to live either he might die before any of these old folks people do because i think they looked healthier than he did well and that's i i was wondering if they were saying something about that the fact that like you know he's preying upon because these were like from the conversations we had the few conversations we had the old folks they seem like they were wealthy people of means that had lost Mm -hmm. everything and he's kind of like preying on them he's like the spider that keeps sucking on the other smaller spiders and getting bigger and bigger Uh, but they never really do anything with that Um, they don't and they don't connect those dots quite as well as I would like them to, to where I could understand it. Can I ask you 
what the fuck is going on with Faye Dunaway? Like, I understand the Faye Dunaway, her daughter, and the John Houston situation. You know, mm. he's uh, he's a he's a wealthy, powerful man uh, who preys on his daughter, gets her pregnant at fifteen. Uh, she runs away to Mexico to protect her from that. He's trying to get her close. Like, what I don't understand is Faye Dunaway's husband, who is this guy's business partner and the one that kind of starts to blow the lid off the situation. And John, old ass John Houston, he's hard enough to murder that guy. Apparently. Why is he dating his wife's incest baby? Or was he just spending like stepfather daughter time? No, they were definitely fucking, right? I I think so. I, I that whole thing got really fucking weird and maybe that's, appropriately that's, so, but yeah, This is I, where the the Roman Polanski of it all uh-huh. kind of like, oh, well if you find a young girl in a dire enough straits and you take her in under your wing and and like the way Faye Dunaway is like, oh, he's just so kind and he's this and you know, my father's this monster. It's like I want him to be ha- like Ah, God, I don't, man. And you combine that with the John Houston speech where, you know, he like self-righteously when, um, you know, Jack Nicholson's starting to turn on the heat about like, you know, why why are you doing this? Why are you trying to make yourself rich? Why, you know, how can you do all these things? How can you take advantage of all these people? And he's like, oh, I think you'll find under right circumstances anyone's capable of anything. Like, nah, dude, I'm pretty sure the majority of us put in a situation where we can pray. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'd be shocked, but I feel like the majority of people put in a situation to pray on 13, 14, 15 year old girls, let alone your own goddamn daughter wouldn't fucking rape them. But yeah. like, there's a whole lot of like, Oh, well, if you are a wealthy benefactor, I don't know, man. It's like the, the, the whole like last 20 minutes of this movie just out of nowhere, skeeved me the fuck out. Once they, mm-hmm. that final puzzle piece. well, Plus, like, can we talk about the way that that information is delivered? Faye Dunaway is turned slaps, yeah. is, is just turns out as this multi-traumatized teenage girl who's been raped and abused by her father, and <laughs> Jack Nicholson literally beats this confession out of her. Uh-huh. Like, tell me the truth, goddammit. Slap. Ah, she's my daughter. Slap. She's my sister. Slap. I mean, this went on and on and on. I'm like, oh my god. Because I'd already, like, after the <laughs> yeah. first slap, like, oh, I see where this is fucking going. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's not like, I, I think guys like Jack Nicholson would roll that way and would kind of see things at this and, and like he asked her, it's like, well, did he rape you? And she like nodded no. And I'm like, well, but wait, you just said you were 15 when you ran away. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just the Roman Plansky of it all. Like if it wasn't Roman Plansky, I'd be like, (laughs) ah, it's the 1930s. Where do you go? But like, Jesus, this is kind of a piece of apologia. It felt like a bit. Sure, I could see that. Yeah, I was definitely uh, squicked out by the whole thing too. I think it's. Um, it, it's I don't. I don't know. Do you think the the movie is more effective for that? Uh, for, for for that very squicky stuff happening at the very end, and us getting a real view into just how bad a guy Noah Cross is. It's not just that he's willing to, you know, claim the the bounty of this particular water contract for himself. Uh, it's also that he is just a morally bankrupt person in all regards. That's a good question because, like, I don't think there's anything that's off limits. Like, you know, if you're uh-huh. trying to show, and that's usually how that's the one way you can gauge human empathy is like, you know, the way Charles Dickinson showed the plight of like just really wretched orphans that had no, 
you know, like, like, like there, there's no system out there to uplift them and, and get them out of their misery. It's like, you know, um, telling, telling painful truths. Right. Um, and it, and it's fine, but I feel like it's, un, I'm un, I get uncomfortable when I feel like it's, it's one thing, you know, uh, if you're, you're, we're watching a movie where like cops are in a vice ring and they're best, they're, 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 um, you know, they're busting a pedophile ring or whatever. Um, it's another, if I find out the director of that movie is a pedophile and he casts Kevin Spacey as the villain and he gives him a moment of human, like, I don't, I don't have a problem with humanizing villains. I don't have a problem with dealing with real human evil. It's just like, mm, I prefer the <laughs> yeah. know that my filmmaker wasn't secretly saying, well, actually this could happen to any of us. And, you know, can we really feel too bad? Can we really feel too smug and self-righteous if we... That I guess that's the thing. So is it more effective? I don't yeah, know. I feel, yeah. It's more effective in making me go goo. Uh-huh. But uh <laughs> Yeah, it certainly puts me off any defensive of Noah Cross that I would make. Um but yeah, you're right. It's, it gets extra weird when the people making the movie have perhaps motives different than what I would perceive just watching that myself. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right, you know. Um I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, another bold choice in this movie that mm. sets it apart from basically any other movie I've ever seen. And that is the choice to slash open Jack Nicholson's nose in like the first act of this movie and leave it slashed open and bandaged for the entire rest of the film. And and the bandage work here is not like some clean thing where, oh, you just, you know, you put some stitches and a butterfly bandage on it. No, it's gauze. It's tape. It's like covering half his goddamn face through at least scenes, half yeah. of the goddamn movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that is not done in cinema for obvious reasons. You don't want to you don't want to reduce the ability of your actors to emote. You don't want to reduce the the ability of the audience to see this famous and handsome man on screen. There are so many reasons you don't do this and the movie chooses to. And I think it's extremely bold and a great choice, actually. Yeah, it allows it, it does a couple of things. It kind of sort of allows Jack Nicholson to disappear in the role more than I think he would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, it also gives him a vulnerability very early on, like he's cowed sure. and afraid uh, and mm-hmm. beaten down at this point. And also, I thought it was especially the earlier, the early goings of those bandage where it really does cover everything, but like his eyes and his mouth that somehow that heightened his expression. Like Jack Nicholson's got a snarl, hmm. oh, yeah. you know, like the way he can twist his mouth and rage. And there's an early scene Famously. where he's like, his eyes are blazing and his mouth. Ma- and like the fact that everything was just like, it was like a white circle with these crazy demonic eyes and mouth on it. Like one of those uh, Japanese kabuki masks, you know, like it turned him into that almost like this ferocious thing. And and it's also like I think that was at his peak. I was at his peak in humanity, like he's still just kind of in it and he doesn't give a shit about anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as he regains more of his humanity and empathy for Faye Dunaway and like the, the community of L.A., like he can he gets more and more of a human appearance back. So uh-huh. at the end of the film, he's barely he just has like like two X's over the slit on his nose. Do you think is that what they're going for that? Yeah, I mean, it, if you want to tie it into like the taint of, of the Chinatown stuff, right? You can also yeah. look at it as like uh, some, something that is that is besmirching his his feelings toward man 
uh, in a way. Uh-huh. And and th- this is kind of kind of a reaffirmation of that, right? He gets his nose slashed open, trying to hunt down the bad guy here mm-hmm. uh, and figure this whole thing out. Yeah, I, I I think it's a a decision that makes a lot of sense in context of the plot, but also is just extremely bold for filmmaking. Yeah, it's not you don't don't see it very often that your A-list no. actor is uh, put in huge prosthetics and whatnot. Especially at the um, time. I mean, at the time, it's it's wild. I thought there was such a huge gulf between some of the practical uh, makeup work and some of the others. Like, for example, I thought Jack Nicholson's nose, when he finally saw it, it's kind of like stitched up. and so on. I thought that looked like a real nose had been slit. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Faye Dunaway... I was kind of shocked at how well her blown out eyeball looked like she's just just got this giant hole in her skull. It's like, wow, this is 1970s. This is interesting. Uh, There's a couple other things, uh, you know, bruising and and, and work like that. But then there's this one scene where he goes into the L.A. records, Hall of Records, and he gets this like, you know, insufferable kind of like poindextery guy. And they got this like crazy pimple makeup on it. And it looks awful. It looks (laughs) shit. It intense. looks like you went into Spirit yeah. Halloween, got the shittiest five ninety nine latex kit, and mm-hmm. gave some drunk film student uh, uh, a spatula to apply it with, and said, "Here, make this look like the boiliest bubonic plague pimples that you can do." It's crazy. Yeah. It was distracting. Like if I if I'm Roman Plants guy rolling on that day, I'm like, you know what? Scrape all this shit off. This kid is pin- is, is skinny and pencil necked enough that he's going to read as an insufferable geek. We don't need all this crappy pimple pimple shit on him. Yeah, that was a weird choice. Like, I I assume this isn't just the actor's complexion. Um, no, God, and no. And they, they did this intentionally to him, so. No, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure these were not real pimples. I've seen people with acne. They don't uh, look like this, you know. Sure. Uh, so, I I don't know, man. Um yeah, it's a weird choice. I, there's a lot of there's a lot of that actually. Like you mentioned, Faye Dunaway's eye in this, and mm-hmm. there's a scene in this movie which feels strangely out of place. Um, it it happens during a romantic encounter between Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, where he notes that she has an imperfection in her eye, like a yeah. a black mark inside of the iris where the rest of it is green. Yeah, 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 and it. They're go. They're they're really on like these themes of imperfection between his nose and her eye, and it getting blown out, and this pimpled uh, record keeper. It's I don't know exactly what they're going for there, um, but it's it's interesting. I, I I need to see this again to see if I can pull out tease out the themes there, or or read people who've already analyzed this to death because I'm sure it's out there. Well, so I I did a little bit of digging in this, too, and I saw that, like, uh, you know, contemporaneously of this movie coming out, people noticed that there's this theme of, like, perfection and flaws. Mm -hmm. Like, um, Jack Nicholson holds two pocket watches, one that's pristine, one that's shattered. Uh, Mm -hmm. You got a pair of spectacles. It's got one lens that's perfect, one that's got a crack through it. You got Faye Dunaway, one perfect eye, one that's got a blemish. That blemish eye is the one that gets blown out. Uh, mm-hmm. There is all these contrasts. I can, I can, you got even Jack Nicholson on one side. He looks like he's regular Jack Nicholson. The other side, he's got this ugly scar going up his nose. Mm-hmm. Someone asked both the writer, uh, both Robert Town and R- Roman Polanski contemporaneously. It's like, what what uh, meaning? And they're like, oh, fuck, we actually didn't intend any of that. <laughs> we were just compositing <laughs> no, shots what? and doing stuff. And like, we had no idea Lies. we were putting. 
I mean, it's, it's it's like it's it's like uh, it reminded me of True Detective season one, where the little girls, uh, Marty's yeah, kids, had spiral. all these like yellow spirals and like portals to voids in their room, and like oh my god, they're part they're they've gotten ducked by the cult, and it turns out it was just like oh no, one of our interior designers had a kid that was scribbling this shit, and he just put authentic kid drawings in this authentic kid's room, and that mm-hmm. you guys so. <laughs> but it it is such a strong fucking theme. It's hard to believe that they didn't intend it. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to call them liars and say no. You intended this. You just don't want us. You don't want to clue us in on it. Uh, it's funny you mentioned True Detective season one because I was getting very strong True Detective season two vibes from this totally. movie. Yeah, like they almost just crib the entire plot from this film. Yeah, that's essentially. And and on so like, did you know this was intended to be a trilogy? Uh, I so at the end when I was done watching, um, HBO suggested another movie for me called a uh, Jack Nicholson movie called The Two Jakes, and yeah. I, I made a joke in my head. I was like, oh, "This must be you know the sequel to to, to Chinatown where Even he, he turns out to have a a Mexican brother that like <laughs> yeah <Hot> <laughs> right." Uh, it turns out, yeah, that is actually the sequel to this movie, which is crazy. Also written by Robert Town. Yeah, so there were there were three. It was intended to be a trilogy, and each one was going to be filmed like fifteen years apart and show like you know Jake in his prime, Jake in his like you know retire, and then Jake in his old age, and it's all going to be about the the theft of, of resources from the people of. Um, Los Angeles. The first one is about the water rights in the 30s. The mm-hmm. next one is going to be about the railroad and shenanigans oil. I, and 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 the oil shenanigans. Yeah, like the stand. Yeah. yeah, in the in the 40s and 50s. And then the last one is going to be about land, the acquisition of of land. Um, and the second one flopped. Now it's got a a 67 on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Says it was riveting. The so two like, Jakes. Yeah, so like wow. I don't like I I definitely want to see it because it sounds like if it's a failure, it's probably a creative failure. Um, it has Jack Nicholson in it. It mm-hmm. is not obviously connected to Roman Polanski. Robert Town did uh, still write it though, so like I don't know. But I'm I definitely want to check it out. But it would have been neat to have like that trilogy of um, I don't know, trilogy of corruption. Yeah, uh, if Could if I, I if that was as popular as Lord of the Rings, I it might be good for civil civil discourse yeah yeah i mean i always appreciate when movies like this are made to at least bring to light the idea that powerful people could be doing corrupt things behind the scenes at all mm-hmm. times even there's if they're so strictly much. legal i don't, I don't so know what much. recourse you have when something they're doing is strictly legal uh but you know oh shit it, our uh producer talitha just uh, uh uh slid in chat and said that jack nicholson was a director of the two jakes all right crazy hmm. so now i definitely want to see it um there's so much things i appreciated about this movie um like early on there's this um like i don't know city council debate where you've got this one yeah. like businessman that's like los angeles is caught between a sea of salt and the desert and if we don't get water, we're going to die. We got to build this dam. It's going to be good for us. Good for you. Good for your mothers. Good for business. Blah, blah, blah. Vote for the dam. And he's like this dynamic, striding, confident person with soaring rhetoric. And everybody's like, yeah. And then you have like this nerd that gets up there and says, 
you know, this dam is going to be built on unstable sand shale, and it's it's just like the dam you built 20 years ago that killed 500 people, and you're repeating mm-hmm. the same mistakes, and, like, people are like, boo, get up, no, we just, no, we want the, like, it, yeah, you've got the guy who just, like, we want this to make money, and you got the other guy, it's like, this is going to kill you to make this money, and... I'm pretty sure the dam probably got bought and these people all got rich and I don't know, maybe killed another 500 people. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, there's a tension here, right? Because it's not all about money. It's also about water for the people of Los Angeles. Which is life, yeah. The people who want to make money here have been, um, they are accelerationists when it comes to the water situation Mm. in LA. They want to make it worse so that uh, it will seem more urgent to build this thing and they'll just get approval and then they'll get their money. Uh, and so they're doing that, but it's also a real concern. Like you need water for the people of the city. And as they point out, we built this city in a fucking desert. Like that, you know, none of this, the position of Los Angeles makes a lot of sense other than boy, it sure is beautiful here. Why did some of the crown jewels of America's cities get built in just the worst fucking place? Like law, like like, it's still happening. Like, no, dude, we just, we just watched, uh, (laughs) Uh, a prestige movie called Falling for Christmas um, (laughs) where they built I I don't know it it reminded me of the the fucking ski slopes that are being built indoors in Dubai like we are still doing this shit we built Las Vegas in the middle of nowhere in a desert and said hey everybody flock here to a place that doesn't support life and we're gonna party it up can we what? take like I think we should just dismantle L.A. or La, not in Los Angeles, maybe Los Angeles, but Las Vegas for sure should be torn down yeah. and rebuilt someplace in a major watershed. We should just like the federal sure. de- should go like the Madison, Wisconsin and be like, all mm-hmm. right, I don't give a fuck what you say, Wisconsin, 100 miles all around legal prostitution, legal drugs, legal gambling. <laughs> And we're not going to do this fucking Bellagio water shit in the desert. We're not going to do the. De- we're right. going to. Yeah. Like, why are and, we and doing this? And it's incredible, too, in this movie. The, the very first thing I notice when he pulls up to uh, the estate, the, the beautiful mm-hmm. palatial estate of the Mulrays. Yeah. Is they have lush green grass everywhere. Yeah, they have palm everywhere. trees. Their property is lined with trees soaking up hundreds and gallons of water tons of water they have people maintaining their beautiful sprawling gardens uh, meticulously they are in they are not feeling the crunch of the water supply at all here no no and that's that's one of the big um i think frictions of uh, la life today is that like the average citizen mm-hmm. is told you can't do this you can't do that you got to do this you got to do that knowing full well that like there's celebrities that are you know, have acres and acres of lush green vegetation. They're probably not following the the water. And then and then then you've got like and then that says nothing about the industrial use that dwarfs right, right. residential consumption. It says nothing about the agricultural use that mm-hmm. dwarfs. And you know, there's yeah, you, like you got to do business, you got to feed people, right? But like, but it do you need feel to like be growing equitable pistachios? Do you need to be in the desert? Yeah, growing the most yeah water thirsty crops. Sure known to man in the desert no it's it's it is it is uh it is fucking crazy um i i also um i want to do some more praise of the movie and not just do social commentary um one of the things (laughs) that defines noir movies to me is like the kind of one-liners i like the clever the clever writing i thought there was a bunch 
of good ones in this one. Uh, like when Faye, Faye Dunaway uh, is busting Jack Nicholson for like taking pictures of his her husband because they seem like they had an open. Well, fuck, they got the openest relationship in the world. Like, yeah, you can fuck my daughter and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. But he goes, hey, don't get tough with me. I was just, you know, hired to do a job. And she turns around. And she goes, I don't get tough with anyone. My lawyer does and just walks out of the room like a fucking boss. Um, this is a nonverbal part. But like after she gets out uh gets gets you know she saves jack nicholson's neck she drives him off under a hail of bullets like there's a scene where she's just kind of coolly checking her makeup in the mirror as she's driving away which i thought made her look like a fucking badass uh jack nicholson has a sick burn on this corrupt ex-lawman who's now the bodyguard for this shadowy cartel and uh he says uh ah, don't worry i remember this guy was sheriff during prohibition and like 200 million gallons of rum landed on this beach and he didn't spill a drop. I think <laughs> right. your water will be safe with him. It's like, <laughs> really, there's yeah. like, so, yeah, so many, so many great uh, one liners about that. I'm trying to think of what the other, some of the other ones were. I mean, there were some more uh, crude ones about, you know, people's wives closing their legs and stuff. But yeah, a, a couple of pretty crude jokes in this movie. I don't understand the screwing like a Chinaman joke. Like it, uh, it felt like absurdist humor because like I literally didn't understand it. Well, so, so it's racist, which might sure. be why you're not picking up its wavelength. I, I was trying to put my, you know, like the uh-huh. like in the national secret, my racist decoder glasses to kind of like, uh-huh. okay, to, what? So, so, so the implication here is that the man's wife has slept with Chinaman, right? As As the movie puts it. And because oh. the people of the time see that as a negative thing, it's an insult to both the wife and the husband, right? That's I thought the that they were trying to get at is like his love life was dead and he was looking for suggestions on how to improve it. And they're essentially suggesting tantric sex and they're describing to China. And the thing is that he tries something different. His wife complains because like she's read it in a Cosmo or something. She's like, why? Like it's even worse than what you're doing before. And that didn't make any fucking sense. I, yeah, I, I didn't go one base level racist that mm-hmm. like his wife fucking mm-hmm. a Chinaman would just be the worst. So, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought she read it in Cosmo. Sure. About the Chinaman fucking sure. techniques in Cosmo. Probably be reader's digest or something. I don't even know. Cosmo a thing in 1930. Probably. That's not. a very good question. Were women allowed to read back then? I don't know. They couldn't, they couldn't get checking accounts. We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. 
Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. And now back with more bald moves. Uh, one of the other things that makes this movie great is the score. I was really noticing the score throughout mm. this film, and it is very uh, propulsive. It's very intense. Very horny. At times. In very horny at times. A lot, a lot mm-hmm. of brass instruments, just the warbling at that trumpet. The yeah. And, and this is kind of a staple of the composer who's Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, I, it feels mm. like a, a specifically Goldsmith score uh, mm. to me. You, you think of things like uh, the, the, his involvement in the Star Trek movies. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, I, I get notes of that throughout this film. Uh, I, and I mean, Jesus, Jerry Goldsmith, he's done a, just a ton, a ton of popular films. He's one of the top three uh, composers that worked in Hollywood in his era, I would assume. Damn. Right? I mean, who, who else? There's John Williams. There's... Uh, and you're Jerry saying Goldsmith. that like you saw a lot of um, similarities, but also they're very distinct soundtracks, Star Trek versus oh, yeah. this. And it's it's like, because um, mm-hmm. that's the thing, one of the things that drives me nuts is when people say like, oh, John Williams shit sounds the same. That's because <laughs> uh-huh. you've only heard his marches. And yes, all heroic marches kind of do sound the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, check out Catch Me If You Can. You fucking think that sounds like Star sure. Trek or Superman or anything? You know, um, that's 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 pretty cool that he's. I, I think it's amazing that people have that kind of range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really fit this movie. Um, the other thing this movie does is sells how like awesome being a private detective is, <laughs> at least as it's depicted in the movies. Because like, you just get to kind of tail people and find out secrets, mm-hmm. and you kind of fuck around waste time drive around look at things report back take pictures i thought the pocket watch thing was so fucking smart too right i was amazed when i realized what they were doing with that yeah like, why? Like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like why did he put I, I, this like, thing under the wheel because that's why i was thinking like well it's, it's, it's like some kind of crazy gps tracking device but no the guy has to pull has guys to back out uh-huh <laughs> he smashes the pro- pocket watch they know without staying there all night when he left like that's fucking brilliant it is brilliant yeah uh, then they try something similar later, which I don't think is nearly effective. I can't remember what it is, but oh the yeah, I watch thing really got me. Yeah, most of the stuff in just like uh, the kind of Fletch style social engineering, where it's like, oh, the guy, the boss is gone, for, uh, gone. Well, how long is he going to be? He's going to be gone, and then he's like, oh, well, then all this, uh, I got my day cleared. I'll just, I'll just uh, wait for him in his office, and he helps himself into the office, and he's in there going through the drawers and stuff. Like I, I thought that stuff was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um. I think a lot of his ability to do that just comes from the fact that he's wearing a fairly nice suit, right? Yeah. Like the lieutenant looks respectable. Comments on it uh, in one scene. He's like, oh, you look like you've done well for yourself. He does. Like, uh, normally you see these noir detectives kind of shabby and ran down, Mm -hmm. but like, it looks like that Jack Nicholson is well equipped. He's got operatives, he's got a secretary, he's got a nice office, he's Mm -hmm. wearing flash clothes. um, Nice car. Yeah. Do you think do you think you could ever because that's the other thing is like I've 
every once in a while there'll be a thread on like Ask Reddit or something where uh, a private detective like in modern day will be you know because they they're still people wanting pictures mm-hmm. of their spouse cheating uh you know in- investigating insurance fraud and all that kind of stuff uh, and they everyone says it seems like it's a pretty fun job you're kind of putting together these little mysteries and it's like all, all this stuff is like super publicly available just going down and like let's pull mm-hmm. up seven years of this guy's tax records and all of his businesses and what land does he own and just kind of look and you know uh if you're just even tailing someone to get pictures of him cheating on her wife seems kind of fascinating that you got to find out a person's routine and follow them around a bit and I, I yeah yeah it seems like a cool a cool gig I think Hollywood has made it seem that way. This movie makes it seem very exciting. It makes it seem very fulfilling Mm -hmm. when you get to blow a story wide open, right? And bust a a high level uh, criminal like this. But then it also makes it seem very dangerous. And I think the job is really none of those things. Or if it is any of those things, it's for very brief moments. And the rest of the time is a sea of mind numbing, just nothing like looking through records and it's similar to how i think of like irs tax investigators or something uh, like where they're they're just pouring through reams and reams of tax yeah. records and paperwork and shit and then they'll find one little detail yeah. somewhere that points to a bigger issue here and they go aha that's why i do my job and that's that dopamine hits where it's like it's like Lester in the wire. You know, he's the guy he's going through uh-huh. all these green bar reports and he's just looking for like numbers that kind of don't look right. And you're right. Like, is that but, but that happens that once fun? in a career? Maybe I, I'm sure there yeah. are IRS agents who go through their entire careers, 30 right. years, 35, 40 years and never right. get a case like that. So, right. And, and PIs too. Uh, the other side of it is even if it is like all these little mysteries that you're solving seem like they're all kind of sad, petty things like, like you really feel good about busting yeah. someone who's been cheating the insurance company. Like, have they been in cheating an insurance company? Do you really feel good about like blowing up a person's family and life and career? And there's like, yeah, it's, it's, there's no justice to be done. You're just kind of doing setting petty scores civilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it looks cool. It looks fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's cooler yeah. back in the day. Like a lot of things. Maybe. Uh, can I ask you a, another question? That thing that I didn't understand. What's yeah. what's the meeting with the boy on the horse all about? Oh, so like when uh, Jack Nicholson was in his following the Mulvaney Mulvaney guy around to see if he was fucking around on his wife. Um, one of the things he did is talk to this little boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so I don't I. You're asking me what the little boy's doing riding his horse in this parched desert. Yeah. I can't help you with that. Okay. <laughs> okay, because I do remember, yeah, like, Mulray talks to the guy when Jack Nicholson's spying on him, and Nicholson goes and talks to him I see he's doing a I, chore, like he's riding from the the uh, orchard to the city to pick up the mail or to do something on a daily basis, but... He's bare, yeah, he's just, just a little kid, like 12-year-old kid with a sombrero. Well, is wearing a sombrero? Just, just bareback riding his horse through the desert. Yeah, and then there's a connection between like him bareback, barebacking this horse and Mrs. Mulray, Evelyn, saying she was out bareback on a horse for like a longer time than she seems to have been. Oh. Is this a connection to Mexico and the child? 
her child i assume the movie does not ever connect those dots though it's it just kind of like throws that is a dot out there and says uh connect it if you want i guess well that goes like when i first saw godfather 2 i didn't really know anything about the cuban revolution i certainly didn't know anything about Mm -hmm. the mob involvement and the private enterprise involvement in cuba and all that so like and i you know it's already a byzantine plot without knowing the historical underpinnings so it's like Mm -hmm it took me four or five times watching Godfather two where I'm like, I know exactly every gear and how it's moving and what it's doing. And I imagine this film was similar because yeah, there was a couple things that I thought they were laying thematic grounds and I just wasn't quite sure to make the, how they make the connection. But yeah. Yeah. People, I, I've heard people say that this is the best script ever written and everything connects. Everything is important. Sure, and it has a lot of the the modern day feel in that way, right? Like everything they're setting up early on uh, mm-hmm. is 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 set up in a way that intentionally looks unimportant um, or trivial or like a red herring, but ultimately isn't. And I think that is very clever and and very engaging. And I think the the thing that it has above other screenplays of the era that I would point to and say maybe this is perhaps the best screenplay ever written, like The Godfather 2, maybe The Godfather 1, mm-hmm. um, is it has that ending. That ending, I think, is so strong, such a bold choice that it it might actually elevate it above some of the other scripts, which are a little bit more straightforward. They're still amazing scripts. I think mm-hmm. The Godfather Part 1 and 2 are some of the best scripts and the the best films I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad statement. They have kind of whopper but, endings too that, that say something searing about the moral condition of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, but this feels uniquely, uniquely like a whopper, right? Like th- that yeah. feels like it's a follow-on from everything that has sure. happened in the movies. This feels like it is a punch in the gut in right. what like, you hope and and expect of this movie. Well, so the other thing I thought, and I'm, I'm so glad we got on this tangent because I had this nugget in the back of my back pocket. From like the 1930s to 1968, I think 69, Hollywood was under this uh, congressional act called the Hayes Act. Sure. Which forbidden the, forbidden Hollywood for portraying in fiction um, public, like, like public servants acting in corrupt ways and police acting in corrupt ways. Mm-hmm. So imagine the impact on the American public who for two generations has never seen like, you know, your your public officials portrayed as anything but the guardians of the state. Mm-hmm. And you see this kind of like awful thing and you get to the end where I'm sure those audiences is like Jake's got all the puzzle pieces together. Yeah. He's meeting with his old partner who's lieutenant on the police force. Uh, he's got the old man kind of making a raving half confession to all this shit justice will be done and not only Mm -hmm. is justice not done the worst type of perversion of justice is done and then the heroes kind of led away with being with the phrase like you know like hey jake let it go it's chinatown Mm -hmm. uh like that there's no there's no solving this thing like there's it's there's not even like a hint of like something to come it's just like we lost we the main protagonist we broadly speaking the people of los angeles and we broadly speaking uh, the American people have lost in this instance. Um, mm-hmm. And like, yeah, like the cultural impact of seeing that uh, it's kind of like the shot you know, or not the shining. Um, 
uh, Psycho. Like you see that as a horror okay. film, and yeah. it's like it's kind of tame today. But like, oh my god, all that naked flesh, and oh my god, all that that blood going down the drain and the seeing the blade and see like, even though you didn't actually see it, they cut a few frames before it actually hits her body. The, the clear, like people just didn't know what to fucking do. Cause they'd never seen anything like that. I, I think that mm-hmm. this must've been that kind of experience because we had artificially kept these type of stories, man, isn't it? That's also wild. That that's like, wild. I mean, the censorship there is insane to me well, especially but. since like that was right at the time where we were getting a handle on the right mm-hmm. you know coming out of like the gilded age and all this like sh- this just like decades of corruption and uh you know starting to curb it and gotten through uh i don't know i guess i, I guess uh the lead up to world war ii must have been a hell of a drug you know like sure <laughs> we must trust the government we must have faith in the systems we gotta get mm-hmm. yeah I don't, I don't know but it's that that's in 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 this is the one the first films that kind of took full advantage of like you know fuck the code the code's no longer binding us the cops are crooked the politicians are crooked they're all in the pockets of millionaires uh yeah. <laughs> what what more example do you need of them being crooked than them saying you can't say that we're crooked mm. <laughs> right like right. you can't even you can't even have the idea in your head that yeah. that we would do such things uh that's and I remember because like it's like as I, I had a little microcosm of that when I was 13, uh, I'd read comic books my whole life and they were always under the Comics Code Authority, which had a lot of similar rules of like you can't show drugs being used. You can't show bullets wow. penetrating people's bodies. You get, and like in the early 90s, the comics Spawn were starting up what? Like, well, like I remember Spawn like the first time I saw Punisher hot. War Journal and like okay, Jim yeah, Lee yeah. is drawing a Punisher just full body exploding dudes with bullets and shit and like open wounds and he's killing cops and like I'm a 13 year old in seventh grade like this is the fucking most metal thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like I wonder if that was because yeah. Chinatown like was crazy successful. It won uh-huh. was like nominated for 11 different awards and won like half of them made like tons of money won. for its time. It only won oh, for the it? screenplay, yeah. But shit, but I it saw was it got nominated, nominated for, 11. for so many. Yeah. Wow. Well, when, I wonder what it lost to. Uh, oh, that's always, a good question. I didn't you know what? Look. Yeah, this is always fun. Let's go back and play Oscar history. <laughs> okay. This would be the and, 1975 and I, Oscars, I imagine. Probably. And while you're looking that up, I also want to say that the the hammer of this movie hits just as hard today. And I think oh, yeah. that's why it has such staying power. Oh, well, it ran up against the Godfather part, too. There you go. There you go. See? See? <laughs> I'm saying I think. Look at this fucking murderer's row. Best uh-huh. picture. The Godfather part Two, Chinatown. The conversation. Francis oh, Ford Coppola Hackman, double yeah. dipping. Uh, which was another that's the other thing did you know I don't think we mentioned this on the conversation that that is the same technique that uh, uh, that um, uh, Polanski was going for this where stuff yeah you had you were trying to do a first person perspective without the use of voiceovers Mm -hmm. and that just like Gene Hackman is in every frame of the conversation so you know that he is or it's from his point of view explicitly same thing I thought that's wild that those two movies came out the same year the Towering I, I love the conversation. We have a podcast for the conversation. I would encourage yeah. people to go watch the conversation because it's amazing. And I, I think I my, I admired it more than I liked it. But like, yeah. Uh, um, I, I just kept thinking of Rear Window the entire time I was watching this movie because mm. of the suspense that it was building and the mystery it was creating. And I'm like, especially when I read people saying this is the best screenplay of all time. I'm like, is this better than Rear Window? which is just a masterclass in suspense. Yeah. 
and, and I don't and know still that it's works, better, even it's, though it's, it's different, even, but it's, it's, it, that's the thing about these old movies is like the great ones, even though you can tell they're dated, you're like, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. Like they still kind of have the remainder of the thing. Like it, it still packs the punch. Like, you know, rear view, rear view window. Is it rear window? Or rear, window rear, yeah. rear window. I don't know why I was reviewing there. The rear window, like that, that the, the tension that they build, especially yeah. that final act is still fucking real. Uh, Psycho is still unsettling. And that reveal of the mother is still fucking creepy. Yeah. Even Nosferatu, we did that like the hundred year anniversary of that last year. The core parts of that movie that were creepy uh, are still kind of like strangely effectively creepy. So, mm-hmm. That's it is fun to go back and watch. Like I, I mentioned, um, the Maltese Falcon. If you if you do like this film and you want to see like the original blueprint that uh, that they are not only following but also subverting in key areas, um, I'd highly recommend yeah. checking that out too because it's uh, still is an enormously entertaining film despite being so primitive. Like the editing in that film will blow your fucking mind and not in a good way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, that was back when they were, like, slicing things together in dim rooms with smoke, chain smoking four packs a day. And uh, their attention spans weren't completely blasted by video games and rock and roll music. So things moved at a more stately pace. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, amazing to me when I look at, you know, the awards that were going around, how influential Paramount and Robert Evans and Ford Coppola... the what do they call it um new new hollywood like that whole movement yeah that was happening around then how just powerful it was and it must have felt because like yeah they like you like you got these young guys telling these unconventional stories free from all these moral codes for the very first time with mm-hmm. all these crazy techniques and these new actors were doing method acting and it's like yeah no wonder it uh you know it feels like a big evolutionary yeah. leap um, uh, but then it's immediately going to get eclipsed by the next evolutionary leap in Hollywood, which I mentioned as Jaws. Yeah. yeah, the blockbuster, the marketing machine that that is. God, what if what if Hollywood didn't fall in love with the blockbuster and we had instead like the most films are these kind of like mid-sized films? Because like that's where the uh-huh. real interesting things happen. Like I love my Marvels mm-hmm. and I love like my big science fiction epics. But like, man, you can't really beat a 20 to 40 million dollar like, you know, auteur film director working with a decent budget it's not a shoestring you know you get the the early christopher nolan stuff there you know he's like god you you watch minto and you watch tenet and it's like god damn something was lost in the 200 billion dollars here um yeah i don't know what that looks like but um yeah this, this was I don't know. Is this is this a big budget movie for the time? Six million dollars. It's worth about thirty three million today. It feels yeah, like I said. It's it's, it's your perfect mid budget middle. Film. Yeah, it's where your your weirdo indie films are. It's where your period pieces go. It's where mm-hmm. yeah. It's where it's uh, where yeah, quality and creative storytelling happens, as opposed to the blockbuster, which by its very nature is designed to appeal to as many people as possible the masses and now it's like now blockbusters are not even like you, the mass includes all of humanity uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. you have to you have to play everywhere uh broadly so yeah um anything else we want to talk about chinatown i don't think so i will say this if uh you know we've been we've, we've got a lot of hbo fans um because of the recent house of the dragon uh this is streaming free with its sequel 
Uh, well, it's not free. You have to pay for HBO Max, but I know a lot of you got it, and it's uh, it's available now to watch as well as the two Jakes. If you want to see how the less loved uh, older brother film turned out, I'm definitely going to check that out. So that'll do it for Chinatown today. Uh, this movie was selected by our patron executive producers from a slate of three movies that we gave them. Uh, they chose Chinatown. Next week, uh, through the exact same process, they have selected Air Force One. Uh, a little bit, a little something different. Um, sure. Less we, more. We put some in three Harrison Ford films, and that was the one. Yeah. Yeah. Patriot what were the Games, three? Uh, Clear and Present Danger. I think I think it was clear in present nature, Patriot Games and Air Force One. Huh. So two Tom Clancy's and a not Tom Clancy, a Tom Clancy ish mm-hmm. Tom Clancy. Yeah, it's 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 less noir, more Tom or Harrison Ford punching out terrorists and throwing them off airplanes. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. I've only seen this movie once. I remember really liking it. Oh, yeah. So we'll be back. Uh, and if you want to join, get get in on the inner circle. A break this conspiracy wide open of how we select the films here. You can support us at support.baldmove.com, become a new patron executive producer, and start voting on our, uh, our our weekly movies. We'll be back next week for Air Force One. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.